Welcome to the Anvil podcast from Church's Bookshop. That's Andrew. That's Georgia. And that's Linda. And just our usual reminder that everything we say is our own opinion. We don't represent any other organisation that we work for or otherwise. We're just three friends having a chat without any particular special knowledge or expertise. So we know the last couple of weeks have been a bit hard hitting. So we thought we'd do a more fun, easy one this week. So we're just going to be chatting on a few topics, a few interesting questions that might help you get to know us a bit better. We'll start with um, sharing a a moment from each of our testimonies, because I think that that storytelling can be really powerful. But equally, um, you know, it can be really encouraging to to hear stories of how God has worked in people's lives. So, um, Linda... Yeah, okay. So I guess a running theme throughout my testimony uh, would be me losing things and God helping me find them. Um, I can be a little bit ditzy sometimes and um, absent-minded. I go with it's the creative thing, probably. So yeah, there's been a lot of times, actually, ever since I was really young, where my whole relationship with God was, I lose something, I pray, Jesus helps me find it. Um, it started when I was quite young and we went as a family to fly a kite on the mountain. Yeah, we have one mountain on the island. So we went flying a kite and suddenly whoever was holding it at the time realized that they just had a piece of string in their hand. The actual kite was not there. And so we all kind of split off to look for the kite, like as if we were going to find it. It was a really windy day, so windy that it had literally been ripped from the string. But as we were all kind of wondering, looking for this kite, it occurred to each of us separately that we should maybe pray um, and that maybe God could help us find the kite. Um, So I honestly can't remember what age I was, but I know I was really young. But I distinctly remember praying and then literally just walking a few steps and, and seeing another member of my family come in the other way. And they had this kite in their hand and they were like, I found it. Um, and I was like, oh, that's amazing. I was praying. And then they were like, I was praying too. And it turned out we'd all been praying. And that was kind of the start of my awareness of God being with me in the everyday stuff. And honestly, there have been too many occasions to count since then at different points in my life where I've lost something and I've distinctly remembered kind of stopping and going, I'm just going to pray and then it turning up either immediately or the next place I look or in a really ridiculous situation. A couple of, if you don't mind, I'm just going to share a couple of my stories. How dare you? I know, but I, I promise I'll at least make you smile. So when I'd just started secondary school, um, there was one occasion I was quite a a timid, um, teenager and I was quite scared because I had quite a strict tutor and he didn't let you get away with anything. And in my absent-minded teenage brain, I had lost my locker key and it was the most traumatic thing in the world because I had PE that day and I was going to have to ask my tutor for the master key so I could get my PE kit out of my locker. But before I went to school, I just thought I'm just going to take a moment in my room to just pray Um, And maybe God will show me where my locker key is. So I knelt down on my bedroom floor and I just kind of prayed a really simple prayer. um, Jesus, please help me find my locker key. And just as I said said it to him, I kind of saw something out of the corner of my eye, um, sort of glinting, uh, and I heard it sort of land 
just in front of me um and I looked and there was my locker key and I I would say the only way I can describe it is it fell out the sky <laughs> and yeah that's probably the the more dramatic of my testimonies I just have one more <laughs> um when I was at uni uh, in first year I joined the drama society um for all of about half a term um and um during that half a term I realized um actually how open and what a great community kind of theater people can be um because I was I think the only Christian in the group but uh ever no topic was off limits <laughs> with these people and so we just we had some really great conversations um and there was one day I'd um, cause I was doing teacher training and prim- primary teacher training and, uh, we had to learn about all different areas of the curriculum. So I was, um, doing some RE homework, uh, in one of the rehearsals while it wasn't my turn and when we had breaks and things. So I was coloring in, um, like a storyboard that I was making for the story of Zacchaeus. And the last picture in the storyboard was a picture of Jesus with his open arms. And it kind of says, Jesus is a friend to everyone. So I've been coloring this in, uh, much to everyone's amusement, during the rehearsal. And then when we went afterwards to the pub, uh, I realized that I had lost my bank card and my student ID. I didn't know where they'd gone. And this was like at the start of the night. <laughs> um, so anyway, after a little while, I realized I had enough cash in my bag and was like, oh, it's all right. Like, let's not, let's not fuss. I've retraced my steps, can't find them. So uh, we'll just, we'll get a drink. I don't want to like um, disrupt the night or anything. So l- let's just sit down. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be fine. Uh, and everyone was like, no, Linda, this is serious. This is your bank card and your student ID. Um, like, we need to find it or you need to call your bank and cancel, which is good advice. You should call your bank and cancel. But um, I just kind of um, quite whimsically just said, oh, it's all right. I lose things all the time. And then I just pray and then they turn up because I'd kind of realized by this point that no topic was off limits and people could kind of People were just that open um, and everyone kind of looked at me and said, well, you might want to start praying. And I said, okay. So I prayed um, and then sat down uh, in the pub, uh, got my picture out to continue coloring and I opened it out on the table and then I turned to say something to my friend. And when I turned back, there was this picture of Jesus with his arms stretched out and in his hand, was my bank card and my student ID <laughs> uh, and they just my friend just kind of saw it at the same moment I did and was like whoa that's freaky <laughs> um, uh, yeah so bit of a running theme to my testimonies I'm afraid Linda when I think of bank cards and you I think of doing a Linda <laughs> yeah um, what's doing a Linda what's doing a Linda she says throwing her purse out of her hand into the river that she is crossing with her good friend Sam. Yeah, that's that's how we coined the term doing a Linda. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous term. Um, for um, the story I, I want to, to pick out from my testimony, um, come, uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an airline pilot for the longest time. I think I was about six when I decided and I was taking steps towards it. I took the right GCSEs and A-levels to be on the right course. I'd looked around flying schools, um, got excited that there were um, scholarships you could apply for and sponsorships. So I was really you know, very set on this. 
Um, and then one day, um, God kind of nudged me in that very annoying way he does and said, um, actually, I want you to be a youth worker. And I kind of went, oh, what? That's not in the plan. So I just kind of continued with my life. And it was a whole year later that I got that nudge again. Um, and for, you know, for a whole year, I'd forgotten about it. And for that nudge saying, nope, you're going to be a youth worker. And I kind of went, aha, sorry, God, but I don't know how to become a youth worker. Sorry, oh, real shame there. I think I'll have to be a pilot after all. Tip, don't say that kind of thing when God's involved. He has a way of calling you bluff. Kind of um, sounds a bit too much like a challenge, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. well, nothing is impossible for God. Um, but yeah, so it was, I was at Spring Harvest uh, both these times, uh, the big Christian festival at Butlins. Butlins is amazing, by the way. Shout out to Butlins, <laughs> because like the rides are awesome. Sorry, I'm distracted. Um, but the second time I sort of had said that, and sort of got on with my day and I was going around, there's the stalls all around. As you find out a lot of Christian events, there's like all the charities and stuff, ways you can support them um, and gap years. And the gap year sort of caught my attention a bit because I was just finishing sixth form and I was exhausted mentally and physically. I, I knew I couldn't go on to, to flight school as I'd hoped to do. So I kind of knew that I was going to need a different track. But I didn't fancy going all the way to the other side of the world, necessarily. And so I was just sort of, um, yeah, hang, um, walking through that. And someone walked past me going the other direction. Um, someone about my age. I just heard the word very clearly. Who'd want to do a gap year on the Isle of Man? Obviously, they didn't have a great opinion of the island. But um, there's a boat in the morning. <laughs> there, There is a boat in the morning usually, when it's not too windy or Manan isn't broken. Or we're not in lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Well, the boat's still going, just no one on it. Oh, yeah, that's true. But interestingly, I actually had an interest in the Isle of Man. Unlike most uh, young men, my interest was not based on the crazy motorbike races, which should be happening right now um, and make the island feel very empty without them. But clearly but- they are not, because you cannot hear the distant hum of bikes zooming past. I'd love if that was an exaggeration. <laughs> Um, but um, no, my interest in the Isle of Man was because there's, there, there used to be an airline based on the island called Manx 2, later Sissy Wing, and they flew a type of plane that I thought was really interesting. So I'd heard of the Isle of Man. I thought, oh, I could go to the Isle of Man for a year, get a break, but also I could you know, see these planes, maybe take a flight on them. So I went up to the stand and there was um, someone who'd later become a good friend of mine called Sam. The same Sam that coined the term doing a Linda. Yes, he, he's going to come up a couple of times in these, I feel. And I said, hi, you know, you're doing gap He said, yeah, we do gap on the Isle of Man doing youth work. And I kind of just went, uh-huh. oh. And we sort of chatted for a bit. And he said, you know, I explained a bit about myself that I had a, um, a lot of experience working with people with disabilities in particular. I was a young carer as a kid and I'd worked with, with children with, with learning difficulties. And he said, oh, we've we do placements in church and there's a church where those gifts could be really useful. <laughs> and I, and I thought, okay. And I took the application home and sat on it for about six months. It feels like <laughs> uh, probably not quite six months, but I ended up being the second last to apply for the gap year when my mum made me. I don't mind admitting that. And um, it turns out that in that time, Sam had gone back and I'll let Linda tell this part of the story that I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so uh, during, during this, 
what, however long of deciding whether or not to apply and then being forced to by his mother. Um, I had already decided, um, because I'd heard from Sam, that there was this guy called Andrew who'd he'd met at Spring Harvest. And I was like, hmm, yeah, he sounds like he'd be good for my church where I'm placed this year. And, uh, oh, yeah, may- maybe he could, yeah, maybe he could meet Georgia. And, you know, maybe maybe some years down the line, maybe they could get married. That would be ace. Maybe... I could be a witness at that. Well, no, I didn't quite think that far, but it turns out I was a witness at their wedding. How cool is that? That is, and that is not a word of a lie. Um, Linda set us up before she'd met me. <laughs> yeah. That somehow works. It's a bad habit I have. Couples I put together stay together. I just need you guys to return the favour at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so if anyone's listening who'd like a date with Linda. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. You asked for that. We are now a dating agency as well as a podcast. But yeah, when I, when I eventually got to the island, I was still coming in my idea that I'd do a year of youth work. And this is a deal I struck with God. I'd do one year of youth work and then I'd be a pilot. And, you know, I have the authority to do deals with almighty God. And I got there and there were some lovely people. I met Linda, who was an intern. So sort of like a step above the gap, uh, the gap, gap year placements and, um, you know, she sort of, uh, I met Georgia and, and Linda, she wrote down in her handover booklet, she gave the information about the people in the church. Now, most of that would still remain confidential, I wouldn't say it, but as all three of us are here, I feel <laughs> I can, she wrote yeah. that Georgia is a lovely person who's worth spending some time to get to know. <laughs> it was good. I can't believe I got away with that. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't subtle. <laughs> it totally worked though. <laughs> but yeah. But basically, to cut a, a lo- already long story slightly shorter, um, by Christmas, I'd realised that, that God was putting a call on my life to, to work with young people. Uh, one of my young people had written um, to me at Christmas, basically explaining how much the work I was able to do had made a difference to their lives. And, and that was it. I, I suddenly didn't... I, it's not true. I didn't still want to be a pilot, but I kind of got, OK, God, you knew better probably would have been easier to do without all the kicking and screaming but um you know at least i didn't like run away on a boat and get swallowed by a whale there are worse things <laughs> but looking back now you know I, I look at that that decision that one meeting that the fact i overheard that conversation you know who wants to do a gap year on the isle of man the fact that i'd heard that the isle of man was a um you know was a place with a cool airline the fact that when I was deciding whether to accept the offer, um, I took some time to pray over it. And literally, and the day I prayed over it, I went on the internet the next day and there was a new flight launch between London and the Isle of Man, which, you know, God really That's knew. So how- on the nose. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he knew how to speak to me, clearly. But that one little thing, if that hadn't worked out, I'd never have met Linda, I wouldn't have met Georgia. You know, that would have changed my life entirely. I think of the fact I'm now living on the Isle of Man. I never thought I'd end up living here long term. Um, I knew. <laughs> Linda knew. No, I don't I, claim to have known that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think that I look at that story as an example of where sometimes following God is, is definitely a blind exercise. You don't know where it's going to end up. I don't know what my life would have been if I followed my gut, but it wouldn't have been here and I really like it here. And, you know... I don't know what I'd do without Georgia. I'd be even madder. I don't know. You might be less mad, but you'd certainly be less fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Georgia. Okay. So 
I'm going to try and be quite quick. Um, like Linda, I was actually thinking about are there any kind of themes that run through my testimony? And the one that I came up with is that God has a tendency... Has a tendency? Tendency, thank you, yes. God has a tendency to make me promises or... Yeah, I suppose make me promises about things he's going to do in my life or about things that I'm going to do that seem very unrealistic or maybe even seem like something I don't really want and sound quite scary and that they tend to come true but not necessarily in the way that I'm envisaging at the point I receive that promise, if that makes sense. And he tends mm. to, to find a way to, to bring fulfilment of those promises in a way that actually makes a lot more sense, I suppose, than it seems like they're going to. Um, so I've got two really quick examples of that. Um, and the first one is that yonks ago when we did our mental health episode, I talked about how as a sort of 16, 17 year old, I went through a bout of sort of situational depression. And as I was kind of just beginning to come out of that and sort of reconnect to my faith and reconnect to God again, um, there was a verse that I kept coming across. And it was a really weird one because it's a verse from Zephaniah. And Zephaniah isn't really a book of the Bible that tends to spring up a lot in your life. But in this particular period, this verse kind of came up multiple times. And in the end, I kind of got the hint and thought maybe I meant to be paying a bit of attention to it. And it's, it's a verse that's actually in a very literal sense about... Um, kind of the the nation of Israel and city of Jerusalem and it's a promise that you might be in exile now but I'm going to bring you home and I'm going to reinstate your honour and your worth and anyone who's hurt you or shamed you or told lies about you is going to be kind of proven to be wrong um but I felt like it was maybe speaking a bit into my situation in a more metaphorical way and in some of the stuff I was going through and some of the stuff that caused that bout of depression in the first place and it's been interesting in that fairly immediately after that I began to see I suppose some of that coming through and certainly particularly the bit about being brought home um I felt like that really happened at a time when I felt very very far from God and very alone um that he began to to really step in and just bring me close to him so that I didn't have to do the work because I couldn't right then um but it's been interesting that over the kind of well almost a decade now I suppose since then I'm getting old ooh. <laughs> in the decade since then I feel like that bible verse and that promise has come up again and again and again for me and I've seen new ways in which it's being fulfilled and every time I kind of think that promise is completed and done with God goes ahead and does something else with it and brings out another aspect of it and then my second example um once again involves the famous Sam he's getting a lot of airtime this episode um hi Sam <laughs> hope you're listening <laughs> but yeah um so this happened when I was at university and Andrew and I had just quite recently, I think, got engaged and Andrew had completed his, he'd done his gap year when we'd been friends. And then my first year at university, he did an internship in my home church back on the island. Um, and it was during that year that we um, became a couple and then later became engaged. Um, and I think we'd relatively recently become engaged that Andrew had relatively recently had to go, what am I going to do next? Because this internship's coming to a close. And he'd been looking at jobs. And I think he might even have got a job in the south of England near your parents. Yeah, it was so. definitely soon after that. It was literally the village next to where I came from. So, you know, it, it felt meant to be. Yeah. So I was home on holiday from university. And... um. Did he, did he send us a letter or did this happen in person? I can't it, think it, it was in person. 
Right, okay. Doesn't really matter anyway, but um, Sam said that he felt he had a bit of a prophecy for us for our future as a, as a couple. And the prophecy was basically an image based on two lighthouses that stand in the harbour in Ramsey, where we, the town where we were on the island um, at that point. And he sort of said that we, we as a couple were going to be like those two lighthouses and we were going to be like lighthouses and beacons of faith on the Isle of Man. And at that point, we'd kind of just made the decision that we were probably going to be based in the south of England because that's where Andrew had got a job once we were married. So we didn't think we were going to be living on the island at all. In other words, we were going to leave. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to leave. Well, as it turns out, Linda was right because we weren't allowed to leave. And um, But yeah, at that point, that, that prophecy felt completely the opposite in some ways to what we thought God was saying and that Andrew had just got this job that felt very meant. But it also felt like something that I would be massively uncomfortable with. I don't like having a lot of attention on me. I didn't like the idea of being some kind of like, I suppose, Christian power couple kind of phrase or something. That just would be totally outside of my comfort zone. And obviously, however many years down the line, um, we did end up moving back to the Isle of Man and we got the job between us of managing um, Church's Bookshop, um, which is a way in which... I would like to think at least that we are kind of beacons of faith, but in a way that's much more in my comfort zone and not really kind of requiring me to be upfront and on stage and <laughs> everyone's attention on me, which would be very, very uncomfortable for me. And it's interesting because when I applied for that job, I applied for it just as me. And then I ended up doing a job share with Andrew. And it wasn't till about six months into that job that I suddenly remembered that prophecy, which I totally forgot about because I hadn't, to be honest, taken it that seriously at the time. And went, wow, that's actually come true. And it's come true in a way that really worked for me. Yeah. Um, no, it, it is weird now, you know, on the Isle of Man, it's a small island. Um, so, you know, a lot of people know each other, but it's still, it's relatively easy to be quite anonymous. And we kind of found out quite quickly after starting the bookshop, we weren't anonymous anymore within the Christian community on the island. Um, we're, we're the bookshop couple. That's so you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to be associated with books. That's fine with me. <laughs> I can't think of a more Andrew and Georgia shaped lighthouse, to be honest, than a bookshop. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think maybe that's it. That That was kind of what I learned from that was that God can make things come true in a shape that works for you. And he's, he doesn't, I mean, sometimes he calls us and equips us to do things we don't think we're equipped to do and he gives us those skills. But also I think sometimes he calls us and is willing to use the skills we have. He doesn't need us to, to change the shape we are to fit his plan. Yeah, well. Yeah, like he's put them there for a reason. Like he's, he's made you with your gifts and he'll use you in an authentic way. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, you know, that the shop has given us opportunities we never thought we'd have. Um, to be able to to make a, a difference hopefully so yeah that's great um linda what are we going to talk about next oh okay i have a question what is a fun faith fact do you like my alliteration i i love it, love it. <laughs> oh you're looking at me okay i'll talk yes, again go for it georgia <laughs> um so i was reading an article recently which is going to sound quite boring but bear with me um and it was an article about archaeological research that's just been done comparing the kind of archaeological finds um, in Nazareth to the archaeological finds in the sort of largest nearby town, which is called... Sepphoris. Sepphoris, thank you. Place names are not really my forte. But archaeology um, is. Yay! <laughs> 
but what they found was that um, various parts of the kind of artifact left over suggested that the both towns had predominantly Jewish populations, but that the Jewish population in Nazareth were much, much stricter about their interpretation of Judaism than actually most of the surrounding area of Galilee seems to have been at the time. So they discovered that at the time that Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, it would have been bigger than we previously thought. It would have been a small town rather than a village. They discovered that it would have been very anti-Roman and they discovered that it would have been very traditionally strongly Jewish, I suppose. Very, very hardline Jewish, if that's the right term, and I'm not sure it is. Um, one of the things in particular they found was that the population of Nazareth didn't use um, human excrement to fertilise their fields, which was kind of normal at the time. And that's particularly interesting because at the time, sort of mainstream Judaism believed that human excrement was unpleasant, but not ritually unclean. So it was okay for Jews who were mainstream Jews to use human excrement to fertilise their fields. Um, but there seem to have been particular like extreme sects, I suppose, of Judaism, particularly the Ennies and Essence. Essence, thank you. I'm not good with names. <laughs> who who had much stronger views than that and wouldn't have used it to fertilize their fields. Um, so what it was really coming coming down to was they're saying that maybe part of the reason that that Jesus wasn't accepted in his hometown was that his views were were not kind of hardline enough for the place he came from um and would have been more more attractive i suppose to more mainstream um jews at the time and it was also i mean it wasn't a christian article it was an academic archaeological article but it was sort of talking about possibly the ways in which growing up in this environment that was very anti-roman that was very hardline religious and very big into religiosity and laws and rules and that side to religion um, and might have influenced what Jesus went on to believe and to teach. Yeah well look at the you know consider the essence were like hyper Pharisees and listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees you can only imagine what he would have said to the people in his own hometown. Yeah I really wondered why you were going with this story about human excrement but yeah <laughs> it, is a, it is a fun fact you're right. And never before has human excrement been a fun fact. <laughs> and it never will be again. My fact is, is less biological <laughs> and more etymological. Um, so we all know, um, at least I assume we all know, that Jesus was never called Jesus in his own time. He might have been called Jesus, the, the Greek version, um, but most likely of all he'd be referred to by his Aramaic name, Yeshua, which um, is basically the same as Joshua. It's just a slightly shorter form of Joshua. What I, um, interesting fact, I actually found out pretty recently is that, in fact, in his hometown in Galilee, he wouldn't even be called Yeshua, he would have been called Yeshu. Um, just the accent and how, how they sort of um, pronounce things. And I just found that really fascinating that it kind of brings it home because um, Jesus has become like this name we only really apply to Jesus. And actually, A, it was one of the most common boys' names in the area. But B, just, I think Yeshu is a really cute name. Yeah, it sounds like he should be on, like, Mario or something. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that Yoshi? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's, it's an interesting point we make. We, you know, he's, he's, he's Yeshu. 
and I think that helped root him in his Jewish roots. So that was my fun faith fact with no excrement. Love it. <laughs> Excellent. Always better if it doesn't include excrement. <laughs> um, um, okay, so I guess mine is is more of a just a, a Bible fact that I learned recently, which possibly everyone else already knew, but um, from a popular book called Leviticus, um, I, I've been digging quite a lot into the Old Testament recently for, for some stuff I'm doing for work. And I found a, a law in Leviticus that I really kind of liked. Because um, some of them can be quite obscure and, and you can be like, okay, I don't really understand why, but sure, God said so, because God said so. But um, I found one law which basically said that if, um, if you own a field, um, then when it comes to harvest time, so even though you've planted uh, everything that grows in that field, and even though that's like your life's work, it doesn't all, well, I mean, technically it all belongs to you, but still you're not under under the law, um, under God's law, meant to pick up every last bit of grain um, or every last bunch of grapes from that field or vineyard. You're meant to leave a, a border around the outside um, which you don't pick up. And also, if you're, if you're harvesting and you drop something behind you, you don't pick it up. Um, you leave those things for um, poorer people or people who are traveling through the land, who don't have any income, and they can just go and help themselves. And I just thought, that's that's so cool. Like, imagine if we lived like that now, where where you're not like, okay, this is my life's work, so I'm going to like produce all the stuff that I need, and then anything else, I will sell it for a nice profit. If instead you were like, well, I have everything I need, so why not just give the other stuff away? I mean, like, it's kind of hippie sounding, but yeah, I think it's cool. Like, yeah, we don't need more than we need. We just need what we need. And then why not be generous with all the other stuff? Yeah, that would make a certain politician running through fields of wheat slightly less naughty, (laughs) wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah. When I was little, we lived in a really rural area, and I can actually remember that every harvest time, once they harvested the corn, we would walk through the fields and pick up what had been left behind and take it home to eat. Aww. <laughs> That's cute. Right, next question then. What is our favourite Bible story to discuss? So this isn't our favourite as in the one we most enjoy or whatever, it's the one we want to discuss with people. Yeah, the one we think has something interesting to be debated or whatever. Okay, I'll go first. So um, one that always intrigues me, um, for all the wrong reasons, um, is the, the story of the widow's offering, because it just, it just gets used so wrongly. I mean, and when you look at the, the story in its context and what, what Jesus was trying to say when he pointed it out, um, often it gets relayed almost as a parable, like, oh, Jesus was telling a story about a woman who gave up everything that she had you know she only had a few coins but it was everything to god and she she put in everything that she had to live on and isn't that amazing um but actually the story is telling such a different point um it's it's something that actually happens to begin with it's not a parable uh, jesus is literally there and he's talking about how the pharisees are ripping everyone off and guilting people into giving all of their money to the temple and um, taking advantage of widows who don't have enough to live on. 
Um, and as he's saying this, he looks up and sees a widow putting all that she has to live on into the temple offering. And then she goes away and she has nothing left. So actually, is this such an inspiring story? Or is this a point about the complete injustice of people being guilted into giving up all of their money when they have nothing to live on and some other people profiting from that? Interesting. Point. Not, that, not that it's not. A good, I mean, I think there are other points in the Bible which make a stronger case for giving your all to God and trusting him with everything that you have. And, you know, I think that's like a good principle, but I think it's the wrong story to take that message from because I think it's trying to say something very different. I think that message that you're drawing out is one we really need to hear in the modern church as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my story is the story of the raising of Lazarus. Um, Because it's always intrigued me because Jesus is uh, far away by the Jordan River, um, quite far away from Bethany, where where Lazarus lived. And he gets this news that Lazarus, who was very dear to him, is, is really ill. And... Yeah, you know, he, he um, you get that news and you'd imagine he'd rush straight there, but he doesn't. He stays for several days before stating to his disciples that, that Lazarus has fallen asleep and we're going to go wake him up, which they think, they they actually say, um, but Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better, which is, uh, I guess that's probably the kind of understa- misunderstanding I'd make if I was a, a disciple. Mm. But um yeah, but Jesus, Jesus waits a few days and gets there. And when he's got there, the, the body's been in the tomb for several days, three or four days. And that's what Mary and Martha, as they come out, that's sort of the what they, set, they say to him. That's why they don't want to remove the stone, because there'll be a smell, which is very earthy in itself. But I've often wondered about, well, why did Jesus delay? Because you can look at it from a theological point of view. It was to glorify God by raising Lazarus. Um, but that does make an uncomfortable dichotomy for me that the Jesus is then choosing to allow extra pain to happen that doesn't need to, because it's allowing Martha and Mary to believe that they've become destitute because they have nothing without Lazarus due to the economic system of the time. Um, which is not to say that that's not something that could happen. Um, it just didn't always sit quite right with me as the sole reason. And then you got the idea that oh, was Jesus scared to go near Jerusalem because in fact after the raising of Lazarus it kind of seems like that there really is a, a price on Jesus's head but again I think Jesus wasn't scared to face death when the time was right and would two days have made that much of a difference or, or however long but the reason I was reading a book recently and brought up the fact that in in ancient Jewish culture somebody wasn't actually considered dead for three days after they died the, the it was said that when someone dies, the soul stays above the body for three days until it sees signs of decay and physical change, and then the soul leaves. And that was partly based around the idea that um, of the you couldn't always tell in those days if someone was actually dead or in a deep coma or something like that. Um, and so there was that delay. But by delaying, what Jesus did is he arrived at the point where there was absolutely no doubt that Lazarus was dead to anyone's mind. Because if he was alive, he'd have woken up by now. You know, his soul would have gone. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he, you know, I think that was a very deliberate act to kind of go, well, no one's going to say he, you know, he just fell asleep because it was three days in the tomb and that the loved ones have to check on the tomb regularly, specifically for this reason, to make sure they've not buried someone alive. Um, that's why um, when Jesus is buried himself, that the women are going down to the tomb to anoint him. That That's also part of their checking on the, on the body to make sure he's actually dead and the fact it's three days the delay being due to the sabbath 
again, it, it's that statement of kind of, no, this is definitively dead. And in, in these days where with, with all our medical technology, we don't have quite such a concept, you know, someone is dead when they die. But um, the fact that back then it, there was a bit more ambiguity about when someone was considered dead, I found that really interesting and, and just an interesting point to draw out of that. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, mine is the, I could be going for lots of kind of slightly gross and pleasant earthy <laughs> choices today, but mine Not is... more human excrement, please. No, just blood this time. <laughs> Mine is the story of the woman who has the issue of blood that hasn't stopped for, I think it's 12 years. I may be wrong. My memory isn't great. And I was thinking about this story the other day because I've always assumed that what they're actually referring to is that she has some kind of what we would now recognise as a medical condition around menstruation. Um, I suppose there's probably various different medical conditions that could cause basically continuous menstruation, but I've assumed that what was happening with the issue of blood was that she was menstruating and had an issue where it wasn't just once a month, it was basically permanently. Um, and if I'm totally wrong about that, someone please correct me, but not right now. <laughs> but yeah, um, but I was thinking about this and I was thinking that maybe if that's the case, we really, we missed the kind of the grittiness of that story because Obviously, at the time, women who were menstruating would have been expected to live outside of the community. They would have been considered unclean while they were menstruating. They would have been allowed to, to be part of the community, to enter the temple, to approach or touch um, Jewish men, etc., etc. So if that was something that was happening to you constantly, I suppose it would have been similar to being a leper, that you would have been totally ostracised and outcast from the community you wouldn't have been able to go to the temple or to worship God. You wouldn't have been able to have contact with other people. And so, A, that it would have been, you know, what a kind of sentence that would have been for that woman and how, how, how it was much more than just a medical issue. It was also a kind of societal issue and having, having these huge other impacts on her life. But B, I was also thinking about, therefore, how daring and brave of her it was to reach out and touch Jesus in that crowd. Because there were very specific laws in place about menstruating women not touching Jewish men and making them unclean. And she re reached out and didn't just touch a man, but she touched a man that was beginning to have quite a following by this point as a, as a rabbi and a religious teacher and how, how brave that was. And then how countercultural it was of Jesus not to tell her off for touching him, but to tell her that she's been healed. And there's that moment in the story where he, he demands to know who's touched him and the disciples go, oh, we'll never figure it out. The crowd is huge. And he's going, no, someone specific touched me. Who was it? Um, and then he kind of turns to her and she's shaking. And it just made me realise how genuinely scared she must have been when you take into account that kind of cultural context mm. to, to what she'd done and how, how radical what she'd done was and how brave what she'd done was. And then how radical Jesus' response was to that, I suppose. Yeah, that's so interesting because, uh, like, I, I guess <laughs> it's one of those stories that you hear all the time in Sunday school. And I can't remember at which point exactly in life I stopped, you know, that, that kid mentality of you hear a story about somebody who's bleeding. So you just you just picture somebody who's, like, bleeding out of their side or, <laughs> or their leg or their arm mm -hmm. or whatever. It, just, it didn't really make all that much sense. But... Yeah, I'd never really thought about what that would have meant for her in 
in a Jewish context and that kind of almost similar to being a leper if you're permanently on time of the month and have to stay outside the community like yeah that makes that makes that whole thing story a lot more bold um, yeah it just made her a much more interesting character to me when I started thinking of definitely it right so we are almost out of time we've got one more question to do so we're going to do this quick fire um <laughs> Which Bible character would you like to invite for dinner and in one sentence explain why? Linda. Perhaps not John the Baptist. <laughs> Don't fancy any wild locusts. Um, well, I domestic. think... Mm, probably not. <laughs> I think I'll stick to... Uh, oh, I don't know. What would Moses eat? He'd be fascinating. I'd love to have dinner with Moses. Maybe, maybe a Passover meal with Moses, like who lived through the first Passover. And just have that delicious roast lamb and oh, matzah and that would be ace. I'd love to talk to him about the Red Sea. I just, uh, yeah, that's one that I would love to be there for. But just to be able to talk to Moses about the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that, I think it would be fascinating. Manna from heaven, I think. <laughs> okay, I've been debating this a lot and I have two answers, but I will answer them really quickly. <laughs> I don't know if that's allowed, Linda. Oh, we'll allow it as long as it doesn't involve any human excrement. It doesn't, I promise. Or blood. Actually, this or blood. kind of gross than my previous answers. Um, so my first answer is Paul, um, because I feel like he's actually kind of quite misunderstood and misrepresented. And there's a lot of questions I have about some of his letters. And I would really like to be able to just sit down with him and be like, what exactly did you actually mean by this bit? Um, sure. And also, I just feel like he had such an interesting life and his whole conversion experience was so extreme and major. And I feel like he'd be a really interesting person to talk to for that reason as well, that he had this whole total change of heart and then he literally travelled everywhere. Like, he must have some fascinating stories to tell. My second answer, which will be really quick, is the Samaritan woman from the well. Because, again, I just think that's such a... A, a radical moment in the Gospels where Jesus takes the time to speak to someone who is a woman, who is a Samaritan, who, you know, possibly was not perhaps morally on the high ground. There's not say. much perhaps about that okay, really yes. in the story. <laughs> hmm. But to a woman who for all these reasons was was not someone that a Jewish man should have been talking to. Um, and I love how she, she's surprised that he speaks to her, but as soon as he kind of tells her what he's come to tell her, she just accepts it and she believes it straight away. Um, she's really, I think, the first example we have of a, a Gentile, I suppose, being, being told the good news. And I think she must have been, again, an interesting woman with some interesting stories, and I'd love to hear about what that experience was like from her point of view. I think it's a fascinating sort of aspect. And in many ways, you could call her one of the first Christians. I mean, she believed Jesus was the Messiah and went to tell everyone he was here. There's, there's not much yeah. more of a definition than that. Um, <laughs> I would pick, and I'm going to follow the rules, unlike some, um, I would pick James, the brother of Jesus. Um, oh, good one. Because we don't often think about Jesus having brothers. Um, but the Bible says he has brothers and sisters. So, you know, younger siblings. And there's debates of whether they're actually cousins or whatever, but I think a lot of that is theological squirming to get away from the fact that it literally says brothers. Um, yeah. And there are deep theological reasons that I'm not going into. <laughs> but basically, I, I want to ask him kind of what, 
what's it like growing up with the Messiah? Um, you know, when, when did you realize he was so special? Um, obviously, uh, originally, Jesus' family kind of was embarrassed by him and tried to stop him uh, when he's teaching in, in Nazareth. But then later on, James becomes a leader of the church. So I think he'd be a really interesting person to talk to about, you know, that having the Messiah so close to you in family, someone you knew as a little kid and probably played with and, you know, just spent time with. And yet, you know, he goes off and you suddenly realise that he's actually the Messiah. So, yeah, I think I think I'd pick James. Yeah, good choices, everyone. Awesome. When we have our dinner party, it's going to be really fascinating. <laughs> yes. Um, just don't bring up excrement again. <laughs> and on that note, I think we're probably about done for this week. We'll try and convince Georgia to behave next week. I'm sorry. But, yeah, uh, good luck. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Anvil. We're on the Church's Bookshop website, churchesbookshop.im. Scroll down to click the link for The Anvil, and you can subscribe through Acast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and several others. So there's plenty of ways to find us and subscribe. Why not leave a comment below on the Facebook post um, explaining um, what you, who you would invite to, um, to dinner um, from the Bible and any, maybe any of your own favourite Bible stories or any of the other stuff we've discussed today. We'd love to read them. Um, it really is great to, to sort of hear from, from the listeners. Other than that, though, we have been the Anvil podcast from Church's Bookshop. That's Georgia. That's Linda. And that's Andrew. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.